Hello, I'm Sarah Williams. I'm the head of the Surrogacy, Fertility, Adoption and Modern Family Law at Payne Hicks Beach. And today my guest is Marnie Denenberg, Director of Private Client Services at Donor Concierge. Hi, Marnie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. And we're in lockdown London at the moment. And I'm in Blizzard in New Jersey. (laughs) As we're doing this on Zoom, more and more people are doing everything remotely. And they're transporting their gametes across the ocean. So I think it would be really helpful if we could outline the services that you offer and how you help people find their donor egg, which is what they need to complete their family building process. Yeah, so donor concierge, we've been around for quite a while. And the premise of donor concierge is that before a family goes to an agency and signs up with an agency and then is essentially handcuffed to that agency to find their candidate, we have relationships with over 100 agencies across the country. And as a result of that, we have access to over 15,000 donors. It's going back to that initial premise. We feel that if people come to us first, we're not an agency. We are a service that provides access to all different candidates from agencies. So people can look to see what the best fit is for them. Yeah. They're not locked into one particular agency. They look at all available candidates. We curate portfolios based on the criteria that a family is looking for. And then once they've selected a candidate, then the next stage will include involvement with that particular agency. We don't act as the agency or provide donor management. That will always be handled by the agency that has the relationship with the donor. But working hand in hand, we and the agency work together to assist a family in in finding their optimal candidate. Yeah, because it's all about personal choice, isn't it? You're creating your own family. And you want to have your own ethnic background replicated and your physical characteristics and maybe your academic abilities also replicated. There's been a lot of press recently, certainly in relation to donors in England, about the difficulty with racial matching, for example. The choice is extremely limited and the waiting times are very long. So increasingly, intended parents are looking to America to expand their choice. I I do have international clients at our premium level. We work with families over the course of, I would say, a three-week period where a dedicated case manager is assigned to work with the clients, have a pre-search consultation to review criteria, and then the case manager will go into our online database, which serves as a platform that houses all the available donors on one platform that we have. And we'll review all of those candidates. They'll have a list of of candidates. And essentially, there'll be a curated portfolio presented to the client. doesn't matter where they're located as long as they have access to a computer. And within that portfolio, there will be, you know, each candidate along with photographs, social medical background, educational background, what her um, hobbies are, personality traits, all of that information is provided within the portfolio. And there's also an interactive box so that the case manager can communicate with the client with regard to each particular candidate. And they do have the ability to sort the candidates. So there is a sifting and sorting of candidates 
that goes on both the intended parent side. And then that's all happening at the premium level. Uh, in addition to that, we offer private client services, which is my team. And what we do is offer more than just search services. We stay with our clients for a longer time period, a minimum time of three months. So we are handholding, serving as liaisons and uh, communicating with all the parties throughout the process. And can I just ask, in relation to the donors themselves, where are they sourced initially? How do you go about finding them, you or the agencies? Oh, it's, it's interesting you ask that uh, because... Agencies have their own methods. Obviously, a lot of it happens online, uh, word of mouth, through clinics, various ways. And then we don't act as an agency in any capacity. But at the private client level, we do have families that are looking for very unique candidates. For example, high achievers that you may not find on the, on our database system simply because they're so rare that if they go online, they get snapped up right away and, you know, they're, they're just not available. Or um, some of these candidates don't want to be on the database because they're requesting higher compensation and the agencies don't want to list them on their site because they don't want to upset people because not everyone could afford to have the Harvard-educated candidate. The compensation amounts vary. So they'll keep them on reserve and then we have access to candidates that are on reserve. That's an, you know another avenue. Not everyone is on the database, and on top of that, you know, as I mentioned, families looking for unique candidates, they will ask us if we will assist them in running directed search advertisements. So what we do is we have a, an arrangement with an agency that acts as an exclusive partner for directed search, and they will vet the candidates that come in through our client advertisements. Um, and we'll oversee that process for them, but the agency remains involved and provides all donor services. We have a very bright line. We advocate strictly for intended parents. We, we never go on to the donor side of things. Which is important. It's super important. Yeah. Uh, there's no conflict that way. You're only acting no for problem. them. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you give a range of costs just so that people are aware? Women have a right to, in the U.S., to decide what their compensation should look like. It's not regulated as it is in the U.K. So if you were on our database, you would see there's a range somewhere maybe between seven or $8,000 to $15,000 in compensation. But I see upwards of that when I'm looking for unique candidates. And I don't mean unique in a, you know, they're more special, but they're just certain qualities that people are looking for. They are going to go to the lengths to find an egg donor. They're looking for someone that would fit in their family, so to speak. So if you have two clients who both went to Stanford and they want the Stanford egg donor, then they're willing to pay more for it because that gives them that extra level of comfort. And I also see that in terms of a Jewish egg donor, for example, it can be an intricate process. It is. And, and we work with many families that are looking for Jewish egg donors. So, yeah, I understand that. It, and sometimes families are comfortable where as long as the mother was Jewish, then they're comfortable with that. And, and we, we do get that information. And we can go back to an agency and ask them for specific information 
if the family needs that to feel more comfortable. And in some instances, they'll, they'll provide more information. Not always. There are levels of privacy that every donor and every agency wants. Uh, we, we have a good number of Jewish candidates. And we also, I, I've, I've run directed search advertisements looking for highly educated Jewish donors with success. You know, yeah, everything's possible. It's just patience. And typically, I will, if we were to run a directed search, which I never recommend it as a standard of practice at the outset, because I, I feel like it's always good to look at what's available first before you, because you may find exactly what you're looking for on the database. But if you don't, I would say it's typically three months, a three month process of running a directed search advertisement. I know you're you're representing the intended parents throughout, but. What checks would the donor have in terms of psych and health evaluations? So if we're working uh, with a donor that's being represented by an agency through the database system, the agency is responsible for vetting their candidates. And in all instances, a donor is going to have a psych evaluation. If it's not at the outset, it will happen at a clinical level. But if you're looking at a donor, say, through the directed search process or even by the client in general, we work with agency partners that we, we require at this level verification of college transcripts. Um, we want to make sure that they are who they say they are. And for the most part, I've never really had an instance where someone was not telling the truth. Uh, they, there is an altruistic bone to, to the women that are willing to do this. So I, I really haven't seen any, any sorts of frauds. To, to become a donor through these agencies and through these methods, there's so many steps to the process. You know, if you're willing to go from step A to, you know, to B to C to D to E to, verification is very important. We do require psych evaluations. Um, the clinics we work with require psych evaluations. So sometimes they want to do them or sometimes they want us to find a qualified licensed provider. So it's, it's a mutual process. Yeah. That, work together to get to accomplish. And what about screening for hereditary diseases? Good question. So if someone's a first-time candidate, they probably don't have genetic screening completed. If they're a prior donor, they may already have genetic testing in place. So we, that's something that we always ask, ask about at the outset when we're working with an agency has she had genetic testing completed and what test did she have? Because we also want to make sure that she's had the same test as the intended parent has had, if this is a good genetic fit. And we take it a step further. We do like our families to meet with a genetic counselor to review the information. And oftentimes when a family is looking at a candidate or maybe they're looking at, let's say they're looking at two or three candidates, uh, if the genetics are available in all these candidates, then I always recommend that you sit down with the genetic counselor and let them provide insight as to who they think would be an optimal genetic. Some may be stronger than others. And you know, this all gives the family more peace of mind at the end of the day uh, when they're selecting a candidate. And in terms of matching the physical characteristics... I suppose not only do you need to look at the egg donor herself, but perhaps her wider family. Yes, we will oftentimes have pictures of family members. Not every donor is willing to share photos of family members because they feel 
And so, you know, this was their choice to, to do this, but their families didn't necessarily agree to be yeah. involved and, or they're fine with it, but they don't feel like they want to be publicized you know, on, on a website. So I would say most of our families want to see photographs of family members and, and that's okay. And if someone's not willing to share it, then there are other choices. And do you find that people want contact, direct contact with the donors or not at all? It's hard when you're looking at a profile of a candidate to get a sense of who she is. So many of our candidates, at least at the private client level, We'll create videos on request for our families answering very specific questions. Why do you want to be a donor? Um, you know, tell us about your hobbies. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? You're trying to learn more about them as a person and families find this really helpful. So they'll create these videos just informally using their phone. And in doing so, there is a buffer still between the parties. They don't actually speak. I did have one case where the family just felt that they needed to meet with the donor in person. So we had a Zoom meeting and they actually met her in person. And this was a unique situation. It was just something that they really needed. Now, not every donor would be willing to do that. Yeah. In fact, most probably would not. Yeah. But for this family, it worked out. They actually lived driving distance from each other. And after they met, it gave the family a lot of peace of mind and the donor felt happy to help them. So it's only happened once. So I would say it's, it's highly unusual, but more regularly I'm seeing uh, just videos being made for the family so that you can hear the way she speaks, see the way she's thinking. It's a nice kind of in between. And it just in terms of the legal side under American law, once you've signed a contract with the donor, that's it. There's no obligation on either party, on either side, to provide further information or... We only want to work with a candidate that's willing to contemplate contact down the road. So if that's the circumstance, we will ask. Is she open to that? And we'll get an answer. So some families feel very strongly about the ability to have contact down the roads, and other families, it's, it's not on the top of their list. So depending on how important it is, you know, that will make that a criteria for a candidate select. And what about if intended parents are looking for siblings? We review this with the clients. The clients will review it with their attorney. We recommend that families ask the donor if she's willing to do a second cycle. And that would be a, a clause that's added into the agreement. So, you know, if the donor is willing to do a second cycle, you could come up with terms, you know, in terms of, okay, I'm willing to do it for a reduced fee because it's a sibling cycle. Typically, a candidate will do that. But there's no guarantee. Like, let's say she has a bad cycle and she doesn't want to cycle again, or the clinic says, you know, we don't think that she should cycle again, then it may not work out. Just even asking a donor if she's willing to do a second cycle, if she says yes, as long as everything's medically clear, that gives families peace of mind that they can go back and have her engage for a second cycle. Can I ask, under this age of COVID and the vaccination, what are intended parents asking? Are they asking for their donor to be vaccinated or not vaccinated or wearing a mask? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've seen different responses from families. So I have 
one family that is saying they only want a donor who has not had the vaccine. Um, then I've had others that are not concerned at all. You know, if a donor's traveling, families are putting, have different criteria in terms of travel, double masking, different, different things that they feel would give them peace of mind. They also want to protect her, obviously. So they'll speak with their doctors and ask them what they think would be best. And I would say that COVID is shaping some of the decision-making. Some families are putting additional stock in candidates that are more local so that it's not as difficult to cycle. And then I even have a family that is shipping their genetic material to a clinic closer to the donor so that she doesn't have to travel. So yeah. there's different ways to go about handling COVID uh, right now, but it hasn't really stopped us in any way. For example, I, we, we had a situation with a family from Paris that they selected a surrogate here and they had a donor egg. They needed to ship the husband's genetic material. So they went from Paris to London to an FDA-approved clinic, and then they shipped his sperm to the clinic where they created the embryos here in the U.S. And now we have a surrogate that's waiting, and they'll be able to move forward. They don't have to be here for the transfer. It's, yeah. You know, the transfer is for the surrogate, and, and that's how they're moving forward. It yeah. worked out well. And I think people are nervous about traveling, the times for quarantine, the exposure to the virus as they're traveling. So you can certainly see the advantage of setting up an arrangement like that. We also do sperm donor searches. We also do surrogate searches. And as I mentioned, this, it, for an egg donor search, it can be really quick. It could simply be you know, a three-week process where you're presented with 20 to 40 candidates at the end of the day. And I, you know, I've seen more and less depending on the criteria. And, and then you, you're on your way. With the sperm donor search, there's, I think that we work with approximately like 14 sperm banks. And, and it's similar in the respect that, you know, we, we present candidates to the clients. And then with the surrogates, a surrogacy arrangement, it takes us typically, I would say four to six weeks to find a surrogate for a family, which is a great time frame essentially because I used to work at a surrogacy agency and people were waiting eight months to a year to even be presented with a candidate. So we take into consideration for all of our searches the obviously the medical guidelines that are in place. You know, we have ASRM guidelines here in the US. So we're looking at the guidelines. We're also looking at the requirements of the family's clinic. And then we have our own conservative guidelines that we're we're looking at. So we'll review the candidates in any of the scenarios based on all of those guidelines before we present them as as options to our families. And, you know, we have strict standards, um, pretty conservative. Uh, We're looking at BMI. We're looking at um, any medical or psychological health history. We're looking at, at various factors and obviously taking into consideration any sensitivities that the family have that they want us to consider in that process. And in terms of cost as well for the surrogate, I mean, is it the more experienced they are as the surrogate, the more expensive they are? In some circumstances, it also depends what state they reside in. So what's considered reasonable in California may not be considered reasonable in another state. Yeah. California is very surrogacy friendly. 
So people like to come to California for that. Although we do have surrogates all over the U.S., we will only work, obviously, in Brownlee states. That's a consideration as well. Yeah. And again, in terms of COVID and the vaccine, what are intended parents asking of their surrogates? And that, that's an interesting question. I actually had a situation where a surrogate prior to the embryo transfer came down with COVID and the family was presented with the question, oh, do we continue with her or do we not? And they spoke with their doctor about it and the doctor said, actually, we don't really have a problem with it. If anything, now like she will have had it and we know what her reaction is and uh, so they gave her a green light, and so the clients move forward. And then with regard to the vaccine and surrogates in general, the doctors here are recommending that someone who's planning to get pregnant, that they get the vaccination. Yeah, compensation for surrogates, the range will be anywhere from, I would say, around dollars $40,000 to I've seen as high as like into the 70s. And it will vary based on, obviously, the state where she resides and also if she's a repeat surrogate. In terms of like what we do, obviously, we're just trying to provide people with an opportunity to find their optimal candidate in a reasonable amount of time and you know, with confidence that they've essentially viewed so many of the candidates out there that they feel like they've really selected their their top choice. But at the same time, we always tell families with egg donors, you should have a list of like your top three to five candidates, not your top one candidate. And you shouldn't look for your perfect candidate. No one's going to be you. You know, you can't really find someone who is you, unless you can have your characteristics and whatnot. So we want to set a realistic bar and we also want there to be three to five top choices. Sometimes, obviously, when you're working with a family looking for a high academic achiever, maybe it's two to three candidates, not three to five. If you have your heart set on one particular candidate, and let's say her genetic testing comes back and it's she's not a good genetic fit, you don't want to be back where you started with nothing. So if you have some top candidates, let's say you have two to three candidates, um, or three to five, then you say, okay, let's let's move on to the next candidate. Because at the end of the day, you want to find someone who's healthy and comes as close to what you're looking for as possible. And you must be getting families from all around the world, especially China. Uh, we have a team of uh, staff that work on finding Chinese candidates, finding, you know, uh, surrogates for them. And they do speak Mandarin. So... There are no real barriers in terms of communication. And our, our team is, is well-equipped to, to deal with the families that are residing overseas. So we do work with a lot of families that are in China, we, and we work with a lot of families in the UK. I recently had a family from Lebanon. Uh, it, we've, we have families from all over the world. It's, it's really interesting. In the UK, you're required to um, – candidates need to be known. And I, so yes. the way we work with that – here is they don't have to be known completely in in the u.s you can what lawyers typically will do is share a first name and a donor number and that would be enough as long as there's a mechanism for future contact 
for example, the donor sibling registry or an anonymous email address that the parties can exchange just for purposes of reaching out to each other in the future if necessary. Have you had scenarios where the intended parents have separated? I've had situations where families have separated during the process just because they were under so much stress. And you know, it's one thing that we constantly talk about is the need for support systems for families going through fertility issues. And specialist counselling, definitely. Counselling yeah. is really important. So we, we have a network of counsellors that we also recommend to our families. And, you know, they they may not really want to meet with the counselors. Some of our families are very private, and, and that's fine. But we do have those resources available. It is very important. I think unless unless you've been dealing with people going through these processes, it's easy to minimise the stress. But actually, at every stage, you're waiting to pass that next hurdle and then the next hurdle and just make sure everything's okay. Yes, and depending on the family, they may have come into this from a feeling of, of great loss. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Some of our same-sex male couples, yeah. they, they come to this process so excited because they say, I've had families say to me, we just never thought the day would come that we would be able to have a family. And now this is so great. We're so excited. You know, yes. like, sign, yeah. sign the dotted line. Let's get this going. But then other families... Uh, and, and I see this more regularly with my, you know, heterosexual couples. They've gone through so much, so many IVF tries and failures. And so, cancer treatments. So that by the time they get to me, they're exhausted. Yes. And, they, and they're at that point, you know, that they just, it's harder to handle any sort of disappointment. So it's about making their journey as smooth as possible. Thank you so much. That was incredibly insightful.